This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, June 13th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. What is the proper role of government in family policy? At the Cato Institute's Benefactor Summit held last month, Cato's Alex Narasta sat down with Director of Opportunity and Family Studies at Cato, Vanessa Brown Calder, about a libertarian view of family policy. So it's uh, exciting, Vanessa. You, uh, you know, it's been a little over a year since you uh, rejoined us as Cato's Director of Opportunity and Family Policy Studies. Uh, it's been a real pleasure welcoming you back after your time on the Hill with the Joint Economic Committee. Uh, what are you working on in your new role? Well, thank you. Well, I'm thrilled to be back, first of all. Um, obviously, opportunity and family policy, you mentioned both of those things. And those things, that is a broad umbrella uh, of topics that fit underneath opportunity and family policy. As a few examples to make it a little more concrete, um, recently I've been working on homelessness, published a study on that. I worked with you on a study on au pair, the child care program, the au pair child care program, and reforms to that. Um, and I have also been working on a fertility and family policy paper, which should be published imminently. But issues like childcare, paid leave, you know, flexible work, housing affordability, these are all things that fit underneath the opportunity and family policy umbrella. So the opportunity part, I mean, that makes perfect, complete sense from a libertarian perspective. Really no, no questions about that. It's obvious how it fits in. Uh, you know, reducing or eliminating rules and regulations that reduce opportunity is is a no-brainer from my from our perspective. The family portion, though, may sound a little little odd. I think maybe to some people in the audience, it's not usually what libertarians write about or talk about. Why should libertarians care about family policy? Well, I think from a principled perspective, uh, individuals should be able to form the families that they want to. Uh, from a practical perspective, libertarians have families too. We care about our families. If you uh, ask Americans broadly what gives them meaning, what gives their life, um, what gives them value in their life, they say family or spending time with family. So if we're not, if we don't have a voice on these issues, then we're going to be missing and ignoring issues that we care about. But you know, Americans across the country care about too. I also think it's worth saying that the government is already involved in family policy, whether we like that or not. Um, and it's trying to get more involved by creating programs like, you know, federal paid leave programs or, you know, subsidizing childcare at a high level or universal pre-K or, ex you know, expanding existing spending or existing programs as well. So, there are a variety of these bad ideas are coming out on both the left and the right, although many of the ones that I just mentioned are democratic proposals, and we need to have a voice on these issues. So what convinced you of the need, though, for libertarians to be more involved in pushing back against these government family policies that exist? Well, it started on the Hill. I was on the Joint Economic Committee for a few years um, and my experience there helped to crystallize my view that we need more libertarian voices in this space. I really enjoyed working with my colleagues on JEC. It was a real pleasure to work with Senator Lee as well, but there's this current of thought that was bubbling up while I was on the Hill on the right that the U.S. required more heavy-handed ha heavy government involvement um, in some of the problems that, uh, you know, that we face. So I must admit, I'm one of these folks who, when I hear people talk about how the end of the world is coming and some big disaster, I'm usually skeptical. 
It started when I was in school and people were telling us that the rainforest is going to go away and we're all going to suffocate. And that didn't seem to make any sense at the time. Uh, but I do, I'm, I do also must admit that um, declining fertility in the U.S. and globally is something that I do worry about a bit. I remember reading the work of Julian Simon about the benefits of humans, uh, how great we are, how we're the ultimate resource, the work by our own Marion Tupi on this. Um, about how great people are. So fewer people in the future does kind of worry me. Um, what's the current state of fertility in the U.S.? And should I worry? <laughs> good question. I, um, I guess I'll start by saying that I also think that humans are good. People oh, are nice. good. Agreements. That's <laughs> a starting point. U.S. fertility is on the decline. Um, it is uh, declining in a way similar to other developed nations. In fact, the U.S. was a outlier for uh, many years, sort of a positive outlier in that it had relatively stable fertility rates, but it is converging towards other industrialized countries' fertility rates now. Um, and it is below replacement level fertility. And the reason why that worries people is that if you have sub-replacement level fertility and uh, you either have continued decline or it's sustained at sub-replacement uh, sub level, and it's not compensated for by things like immigration, for instance, then you will have population aging and population decline over time. So that being said, I think it's worth keeping a few things in mind. One is that fertility doesn't always decline for nefarious, scary reasons. Sometimes it even declines for dare I say, positive reasons like uh, greater freedom for women or um, increased opportunity for women, maybe less discrimination in the workforce. Lower child mortality allows parents to have fewer births and still have the same family size. Now, I think almost everyone would say that that is a good thing. Um, and even things like reduced teen fertility or reduced teen pregnancy, which is something that I think that we'll circle back to maybe later on. Uh, one other caveat is just that fertility is very difficult to project. Um, in the past, demographers have gotten it wrong. So, you know, people look at fertility trends and they say, well, what happens if we just extend this trend out? And sometimes that looks very scary. But, you know, as one example of where uh, folks have gotten it wrong, in the 1930s, we had sub-replacement level fertility, and no one was predicting the 1950s baby boom, and in, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, so that caught everybody by surprise. Now, all that being said, I think, you know, if fertility continues to decline or it stabilizes at a low level, there are likely to be some economic and fiscal trade-offs. From an economic growth and fiscal sustainability perspective, we can expect that the U.S. working age population will begin declining in the next decade. It has been stable. A declining workforce is not a good thing for workers or, uh, you know, it's not a good thing because declining GDP is not good for workers. It's not great for businesses. And with fewer workers and fewer young people, you mentioned Julian Simon, you know, that can lead to less innovation, less productivity. Another thing that people talk about a lot is federal programs and uh, solvency gaps, and people are worried about how those might be exacerbated by fertility decline. Now, I think as libertarians, we've been worried about federal solvency gaps for a long time. Uh, so that's not really something that pushes me over the edge because I think it's something we need to deal with anyway. And I think you're gonna talk probably a little bit more about that in a later panel. But, <laughs> 
all of those concerns, um, taking, you know, considering all, all of those things that I just mentioned, I think we do have to be careful here to balance those concerns against, you know, our commitment to preserving individual decision-making and choice in a very sensitive area um, of, you know, people's lives. And also, I think that we have to admit that both having more children or having fewer children, both of these things are compatible with freedom. I hear all these different complex explanations for declines in fertility, and you mentioned a, a few of them. You know, some people blame culture as if that's a thing. Like, culture is everything, and it affects everything. So I, I never hear this, or I rarely hear the specifics about what they mean. Others blame simple economics. You mentioned women are now in the workforce to an incredible degree that, you know, our great-grandparents wouldn't have imagined, are productive uh, workers and, and educated. I mean, could it just be that confronted with this choice of, you know, productive economic work outside of the home and then work raising children in the home, which which is a lot of work, despite what Harrison said, uh, quoting me, you know, that, that, you know, many women are choosing just to have fewer kids and instead working more. Well, I think that is a good ex explanation for fertility decline in past periods. So if you look in the 1930s kind of onwards, well, fertility decline has been happening for a long time. So I think that that's also something we get really wrapped around the axle on the most recent decline um, where we've gone back to below sub, you know, replacement level fertility. Um, but it's been happening since, let's say, at least the early 1800s. Um, in the 1930s, labor force participation for women and fertility were inversely correlated. And there's an argument that, you know, women did have fewer children because now they were able to be part of the labor force in a way that they hadn't in the past. But that said, uh, labor force participation has actually declined recently for women from its highs in the 90s. And average hours worked have been about stable over the last couple of decades. And gender norms and division of labor and these type of things have been pretty stable since the 80s. So that I don't think that it's a good match for the current decline, um, which, you know, makes us wonder, well, what is it that actually is, is causing this current decline? And I think that there's a few things that we can say confidently. One is that we know that the number of children that women prefer to have has been declining from one generation to the next. Now, that might sound like it's sidestepping the question a little bit, but I think it's important because it's not that women are having a harder time achieving their desired fertility than they were in previous generations, which is what some researchers have argued. It's that actually they want to have fewer children and they're having about as good of a time achieving that as they were in the past. Another uh, cause of current decline, teenage fertility has fallen uh, substantially actually since the 90s and explains a good portion of the current decline, most recent decline. Economist Gary Becker also suggested that the quantity quality trade-off was an important cause of fertility decline. And this is basically the idea that Parents, they both derive value from having an additional child, but also from investing in the existing children that they have. And for a variety of reasons, parents are deciding to do the latter, uh, basically invest more in the children that they already have. That could be maybe because of societal expectations. Maybe it's because we're all living longer. And so human capital development is more important than it once was but we have a lot of evidence of, of, the, of that.
Now, what role does government play in this? Uh, there are attempts to subsidize children. There's also regulatory issues. What are those? Um, yeah, well, I think, you know, the government is involved in a variety of ways, as I mentioned, uh, is sort of the outset. On the one hand, uh, government subsidizes children and families in various ways. One way is through K through 12 spending. That's, you know, upwards of $15,000 annually on average per child. The child tax credit is another example. On the other hand, uh, the government also penalizes having children in various ways, makes it harder or more expensive. As a few examples, daycare restrictions reduce the supply of, of daycares and they push up the cost. We just had that situation in D.C. Yes. With that crazy rule. What is it? They had the, the daycare worker had to have a college degree? A bachelor's degree or an associate's degree degree, depending, oh, okay. depending, but yes, a college degree. Yes, Crazy. that's correct. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, yeah. So there's some kind of extreme examples of daycare restrictions now that have been adopted recently. Of course, zoning regulations push up the cost of housing, which is a big part of a family's budget. Um, and that's sort of the problem with government policies in general is that often they counteract one another. They waste a lot of money and everybody's time in the meantime. So it's hard to say really whether the government is pro-child or pro-family or not. So I think it's fair looking at the policy landscape. We've got liberals and conservatives who have different notions of family policy, but they all seem to involve spending a lot of taxpayer money on different things. What is a libertarian approach then to family policy? Well, I'm hoping that the audience is starting to get an impression of what that looks like. I think it requires neutrality regarding diverse, you know, preferences for how to how to raise children, how to how parents should work, how to care for and educate children, and a respect for diverse types of families. And it requires protecting people's personal, individual freedoms as well. I think there are a lot of common sense libertarian policy reforms that can be made in order to make family life more affordable, uh, easier, less stressful, more enjoyable. So what are some of these like, so some of these specific ways though, some of these specific deregulations, you mentioned a handful of them. Are these mostly state, local, federal? Where do they mostly fall? There, um, oh, so we have a, actually a paper coming out on this. Chelsea Follett and I have written a paper on fertility and family policy, and there are many reforms uh, in that paper, so you'll have to stay tuned and take a look <laughs> at it for all the details. I probably won't have time to mention all of them today, but we do look at labor policy, tax policy, um, you know, we look at housing policy, child care reforms, even immigration policy, and how those could improve families' lives. As one example of a specific, you know, specific way that we could make um, having children easier and um, uh, easier and less stressful for parents, there have been a variety of reasonable independence laws passed just recently in states around the country. And these basically, they allow children to walk home from school alone, play in their front yard alone, especially in light of the fact that 
families or parents are spending investing so much time into their children these days and that that may be limiting fertility for families. I think we want to be careful that it's not the government limiting fertility for families by requiring, you know, kind of helicopter parenting um, when it's not necessary, really. And in fact, when children would be better served by more independence. So sometimes we, we at Cato, we work with conservatives to achieve certain policy goals. Sometimes we work with liberals and progressives and Democrats to achieve these goals. How do you see this coalitional work shaking up when it comes to fertility? Um, who are you going to work more with, you think? <laughs> well, I've always been of the philosophy that we should proactively look for opportunities to work with both sides. And I think that there are ways to message on these issues that appeal to both sides. We're seeing a lot of genuine interest in zoning reform right now, which I think has probably been mentioned. Um, states around the country uh, and cities as well have taken matters into their own hands, as they should, because they're really the cause of the housing affordability issues to begin with. And they've been looking over their zoning codes and deregulating in various ways to increase, increase density. So places that are really blue, like, you know, California or Washington, Oregon, Seattle, Minneapolis have been implementing these types of reforms. On the other hand, uh, going back to reasonable independence laws, you know, there was a reasonable independence law passed in Utah to begin with, but Colorado recently passed one last year. Um, and Virginia actually just very recently, I think in the past month, passed a reasonable independence law that was supported both by Republicans and by Democrats as well. So, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to, you know, make progress um, and find allies, allies on both sides. Vanessa Brown Calder directs Opportunity and Family Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Alex Narasta is Vice President for Economic and Social Policy Studies at Cato. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 